a ministry of Community Bible Church, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be a first-time listener here at WAGP.net or locally at 88.7 FM. And if you are, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions concerning God's infallible, inerrant word. You may have a particular issue that you're wrestling with, maybe a Uh, some passage you're trying to understand or apply, or you just need biblical counsel. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. There's many ways you can contact us. You can email us directly here into the studio, and the email address is TBL. It stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. Or you can call us again at the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that number simply is 525-1859. If you do call, we do give preference to live callers and dictations. Um, We try to answer the questions as best we can and as fast as we can, but usually we're about two months behind, especially with questions that come in. But when your question is answered, we will email you so you can listen to the audio file and uh, find your answer there. All right. I think We've already had some questions come in. Let's go ahead and get started, Walter. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes in uh, as a live dictation, and it is anonymous out of Virginia. She writes, my daughter is 23 years old. She is getting married, and her and her fiancé go to church, but not in a consistent way. The caller would like uh, for them to have premarital counseling, but is there anything that you can suggest, Pastor Carl, i.e. the Search of Scriptures app, that may help them out? Yes, uh, there are several things that I would suggest. If I were marrying them, you know, there would be a requirement of six one-hour appointments. If they came to me and said, we wanted to get married next month, I'd say, well, I'm sorry, we can't do it. The closest time from once an application is filled is six months because we want to make sure people get good, sound, solid premarital counseling. Some of those resources are available at Search the Scriptures, certainly, uh, the one on financial counseling. It used to be the number one cause of divorce was finances. It's number two now. The number one cause today is adultery. But finances can create a lot of stress in a marriage where there's conflict that may lead to someone else looking elsewhere that ultimately crushes the home. But in either case, it's important that a young couple be on the same page. More and more couples want to acquire in a year or two, what it took their parents 20 years to do, they amass a large amount of debt, they put stress in the family, then children come, they have moral commitments they have to keep, and instead of being able to raise your own children at home, they're in daycare, someone else is raising them, and before long, the family is frayed and coming apart. So I would definitely suggest that if they're open to it. It basically walks through what the Bible says about 
ownership that you really don't own anything. It's all God's. And unless you start there, you're going to have problems. And a husband and wife need to see, if they're born-again Christians, that they're just stewards of what God has entrusted to them. We look at what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about debt, what the Bible says about planning. And then the final step is you take all those biblical principles. It's a 130-page notebook they work through, um, and they try to create a budget. Everyone has a budget. It's either a good one or a bad one. It's either in writing and it's thought through and it's planned, or it's by the seat of your pants. And usually the latter doesn't work. Uh, So I would definitely say that. Certainly there are some spiritual problems that are going on already. Uh, They are in disobedience to what the Word of God says. The Scripture says, do not forsake your assembling together as is the habit of some. Uh, But we're to be together. We're to encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And the Scripture says, all the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The return of Christ. No one knows the day or the hour, but my. The writer of the Hebrews was helping us here at the end of the age because we can see the day is approaching as God is setting the stage, especially through Israel. It's not by accident that Israel is back in the land. God says he does that at the end of the age, and he'll gather the Jewish people. So they need to be in a local church, not uh, you know occasionally, but consistently weekly. You know, I'm not a legalist if someone is sick and they have to be home with the kids. Or I get it. But there's no substitute for being together with the people of God, not even live streaming. Now, we have a lot of people who live stream our service for vitamin supplements, and then they go on to a regular church at another hour. But you need to be in a local assembly, Bible-believing. You know, I'm assuming these people are born again, but if they're not, then I would start with go to search the Scriptures and listen to, would you like to know God as your friend? Uh, But I would definitely, um, you know, because they need to be on the same page. Uh, God says a believer is only to marry another believer. And if they're not believers, the chances of their home really making it is slim. Uh, I just covered this subject in last Sunday's message in my message on Malachi. Uh, We dealt with uh, throwaway marriages and why it is, according to a recent Forbes study, 51% of all first-time marriages now end in divorce. You know, that's um, up from one in a hundred. We've gone from one in a hundred in 1923 to 51 out of a hundred. And then second and third, it just progressively gets higher. And so they need to go down the aisle. Actually, the very first counseling appointment I do with a couple concerns the permanency of marriage. And unless they're both convinced it's until death, do us part, not until divorce do us part. They, they can't move forward. Uh, their, their chances of their marriage making it is just usually diminished. So that would be a good message to listen to. Maybe in the discovery class, the whole discovery class, we call it basic discipleship, would be fantastic premarital counseling. In fact, when couples come in and they're at war with one another and they are believers, and more and more that's the entry level you know, as to why someone comes to church these days. Why'd you come? Well, our marriage was in trouble and we thought maybe God could help us. And if I'm going to counsel them, I require them to go through our discovery class. It's called Basic Discipleship Online. And one of the lessons that they could listen to is the Christian in the local church. They need to see that they are in willful disobedience. They are disobeying 
what God says. Maybe, maybe they don't know this is what God says, but if they don't, they need to know uh, to the one who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. And if they expect for God to bless them when they're disobeying what he says or they're not following the truths that God has given us to be strengthened in the inner man, and they expect to have success and a really blessed marriage, that they won't. So these are some basic fundamental truths where I would begin with them. Good question. Appreciate this caller from Virginia. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, uh, we're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Stephanie from Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Stephanie. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brogy, so for so faithfully answering our questions. Today, um, my question is from Acts 21, starting verse 17, where Paul goes to Jerusalem, um, even though he knows he's going to get in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And he meets with the elders there, James and the elders. And my, my question is, why does he go through the purification um, ritual when he had been preaching against having to follow the law? Um, but they're telling him, oh, no, no, you you recognize the law, and, mm, mm. and uh, we're, we've been telling the Jews that you do that. Why, why does he do that instead of telling them they don't have to? Well, it's a good question. It had already been clearly established at the Jerusalem Council that the Old Testament ceremonial law could in no way save a person or put them in a right standing with God. And so with that principle having been established, Paul is still one who is going to be all things to all men. For instance, at the start of the second missionary journey, he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Well, his father was a Greek, uh, an unbeliever. His mother and his grandmother, his grandmother Lois and his mother were, were both, you know, believers, Old Testament believers. They came to a full and complete faith when Paul preached and, uh, and yet when they begin this second missionary journey, because he had never had this done to his body on the eighth day, and he knew it would be a stumbling block for uh, Timothy to go into Jewish areas uh, and being uncircumcised, it would be right off. They wouldn't listen to the message because you're bringing this uncircumcised Gentile. Uh, that's how they would view it, though he was a Jew. He's actually half Jewish um, and half Gentile, but still... Um, they would view him as a pagan, and they wouldn't have had an audience to listen. The same thing's really happening here. So Paul is going through the purification rites. It's much like when he he takes a vow about not cutting his hair. It's the same procedure. He's being all things to all men that I might win some, the principle that he brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What I might suggest to you would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, and I actually uh, spend a little bit of time on this and illustrate it, and I preach through the whole book of Acts, verse by verse by verse, didn't miss any verses. And if you go to um, Acts um, chapter 21, 27, it's called, I call it Paul Shares His Story, and uh, I, I preach through this very verse and why he did what he did, and, um, and I think... Uh, 
I think it would be very, very helpful. But that's the broad principle. All things to all men. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. To those without the law, I became like with those without the law. So Paul even, you know, deals with these principles of uh, conscience. For instance, you go into uh, a Jewish home and they're practicing, you know, the kosher eating rules. Paul would say, you practice it too. Uh, yes, God has declared all meats clean, but why create an unnecessary stumbling block so that you cannot share the gospel with these people? And so there were certain practices that Paul was willing to uh, follow, not because he saw them as a basis for um, earning God's uh, justification. That was established at the Jerusalem Council uh, and, and at the Jerusalem Council, uh, among other things, which is really interesting in Acts 15, it's not necessary to circumcise these Gentiles who've come to faith. Uh, and yet in the next chapter, he has Timothy circumcised. Why? Because the principle is established, but he's going to be all things to all men uh, that he might win some. Good question. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, we're going to stay with the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Jack from Bluffton. Good morning, Jack. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Good, good morning, Pastor. I, I'm sure you've addressed this before, but I just need some clarification on the issue of Sheol. My understanding, the New Testament is clear, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But that is not true for those who predate Christ's death and resurrection. Am I not correct? Yeah, it's a good question. So the reason we get feedback when you call, Jack, is you've got your radio on, so there's a slight delay. But let me answer your question. And when you call, friends, just turn down your radio, and uh, that, that's always helpful for the rest of our listeners. Fantastic question, Jack. So under the Old Covenant, prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, prior to the fact when in time and space sin had been paid for, when a believer died, they went to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the grave, the place of the dead. Um, The Greek word in the Septuagint is Hades. And so typically today we think of Hades only in a negative way, but in the Septuagint, uh, Hades and Sheol had two compartments. There was paradise and also called Abraham's bosom or the place where the righteous went. And there was unrighteous Sheol, which was a place of torment. And of course, when a person uh, died, they went to one of those two places. And Jesus tells a parable based on what is actually happening at that point in human history of Lazarus who went and Um, to Abraham's bosom and the rich man who died, not because he was rich, he went to Hades, he went to rich because he was an unbeliever. His wealth had captured him, and uh, he used it as an idol, and it kept him out of the kingdom of God. Of course, Jesus gives warnings like that to the rich young ruler. After Jesus dies and rises from the dead, Ephesians 4, he empties out Old Testament righteous Sheol, and from that moment on, Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so now at the moment of death, the believer immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. His body is still in the grave, but the person within the body is home with Jesus. Now, there are some people who have falsely taught what's called soul sleep, 
A Seventh-day Adventist would be classic, a classic example. But there are some others who have taught it in, a different, in, a, in addition to Adventists, and they say body, soul, and spirit sleeps in the grave. No, that's not true. The Scripture is clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Scripture says in Philippians 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is not a loss because there's going to be broken fellowship and I'm going to have to wait to the bodily resurrection. No, to die is gain. And he dialogues with the Philippians. He said, on the one hand, you know, if I stay here, it's to your benefit. On the other hand, I would prefer to depart and to be with Christ because that's where we go. We're with the Lord. And so when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, He's describing the resurrection of believers, and he's helping them to understand how it will unfold in terms of the order, which was really their question. They didn't doubt that that the believer would be resurrected. They didn't understand the timing of those who had died prior to Christ's return. So he says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Why not? Because he said, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he's bringing back from heaven with him those who have died. Their bodies are in the grave, but the person within the body is home with Jesus. And so God will come back, and he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. That is because their spirits are being brought back from heaven and reunited with the body in the ground. And there is a parallel but a distinct difference. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. This which is perishable must put on the imperishable. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Uh, The body in the grave is reunited with the spirit, and it's totally changed and suited for heaven. The unbeliever continues in Hades. He's still there in Hades. He's still there in Hades all the way through the millennial reign of the Messiah. So when an unbeliever dies, the reverse is true. To be absent from the body is to be present in hell. And just like it appears that believers in heaven are given an intermediate body— Even so, unbelievers in hell are given some kind of an intermediate body, but they are still awaiting the final resurrection. And so at the end of the millennium, the lost of all time are raised up. All of the graves are opened wherever they've been buried, even in the sea. And he uses that as an illustration in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, because people thought, well, somehow if you were lost at sea and your bones were even eaten by the fish, you cease to exist. And that was, of course, a misnomer. It's no different than a person who's buried, and after a thousand years, you can't find their body because from dust you were made to dust you will return. Um, God is clear. He'll raise up all the unbelieving dead. They will receive a new body suited for the place of eternal retribution. And so we read, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, in death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, because their deeds will demonstrate that they were lost, number one. You'll know them by their fruits. He's not teaching salvation by works and contradicting what he's taught through the Revelation, not to mention the Gospel of John and his first three letters. 
John, who wrote the Revelation, but he's affirming that a man's works demonstrate whether or not they had truly placed their faith in Christ, because if someone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But in addition, men are judged according to their deeds because retribution is met out according to one's works. And so while heaven is great for every believer who goes there, it's not the same for every believer. There's degrees of rewards. And so the judgment of the just, the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, which every believer stands before. Well, even so, the unbeliever has a judgment of his works. And so as bad as hell might be for some uh, self-righteous church-sitting pew warmer who rejects Jesus in his heart, it might be different for a member of Hamas who is bragging about butchering little babies and destroying and violating old women and young women. It won't be the same. In God's perfect justice, somehow he will mete out retribution. So he says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So in one sense, Hades continues, but now it continues in the lake of fire. That's the final resting place. And the term that's used for that in the New Testament by Jesus is Gehenna. And it's a beautiful word picture because the Valley of Gehenna was just right outside of Jerusalem. We were just there four weeks ago, and I pointed out from the bus, there's the Valley of Gehenna, and they would bring things out uh, of the refuge gate and all the garbage and human waste. Um, God had set a principle, you don't leave that in the city, you remove it outside of the city, and the Jews had established that principle, and it was a liberating principle uh, during the Middle Ages when people discovered why they had so many plague problems because of the way they dealt with waste, and they learned from the Jews how it should be handled. They put dead animals out there, even the bodies of unclaimed people, and there was a continual burning, and it was a place that seemed like a unending fire and maggots, and Jesus likens hell to that. Um, So Hades becomes Gehenna. It becomes the lake of fire. So no one is in hell today in the truest sense. No one is in Gehenna. In fact, the very first resident of hell will be the false prophet in the Antichrist. Uh, He has just underscored that earlier. He says um, in Revelation chapter 20, when the thousand years are completed, well, prior to that, he says in verse 20, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in the presence in, the, in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So they're the first two residents. They are alive, and there's a transition that takes place where they have a body that's not annihilated, but it's transformed. Jesus teaches that in John 5 for the resurrection of the lost. So Easter is a great blessing for those who are saved. It's really a a dismal message for those who are lost because even as I will someday have a new body, so will they. And then the next resident is when the thousand years are complete. Satan, after he goes through his final little show, he is cast into the lake of fire with all of his fallen angels. And then in Revelation 21, uh, the current heaven and earth that we're sitting on is destroyed. God creates a new heaven and a new earth, but between those two points, there's a great white throne judgment that takes place. And um, and that's where uh, the Lord judges the lost of all time, and then they are thrown into the lake of fire twice over in Revelation 20, 
14 and again, verse 15. So I hope that sorts it out a little bit. I have some messages on this in my prophetic series called God's Prophetic Schedule. And um, I deal with this whole subject in much, much more detail. I spent an hour on it where I just took about six minutes. But let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. It is a live dictation. Uh, This first part, he says, we need to pray for the terrorists like Hamas, ISIS, etc., that the Lord Jesus will appear to them in dreams and visions and that they will repent for the atrocities that they are doing to Israel. Moreover, return all of the weapons to the USA and turn against Iran. My question is, is it okay for uh, for Christians to have this kind of a request? Well, um, one, I think you have some assumptions here, Alberto, that God's going to use dreams and visions as a normative way in which to communicate the gospel. And that's just not true. Can God use a dream or a vision? God can do anything he wants. But typically after the canon of scripture was completed, God didn't speak through dreams and visions. Uh, God spoke directly through his, his word. As the scripture was being written, you see examples in the acts of God using dreams and certainly there have been missionaries who have, you know, shared stories where this guy had a dream and God never communicated the gospel in the dream. But one gentleman said, you know, I had this dream and I, I was, I had this vision in my mind that I, I needed to come to this place. I don't even know why. And he walked three days. I remember Paul Eshelman sharing this story and, and uh, Paul was the kind of founder and producer uh, under John Heyman, who who did the initial draft of the Jesus film, which is the most um, translated film in the history of filmmaking and the most shown film in the history of filmmaking. It's been shown to more people than any other movie in the history of man. But this gentleman walked three days just to watch the movie, um, but he heard the gospel there. So that's not typical, though. That might be something God would do through someone's heart that is very open and they're responding to everything they know to respond to uh, so that they can have an opportunity to hear the gospel. But listen, uh, these people who are involved with Hamas, it's interesting. I, I think that they've even chosen that title, maybe in mockery of the Jews, um, but the word Hamas is found in Genesis 6 and the world was filled with Hamas with violence. The, the term actually means violence. And these are indeed a violent people. Uh, it's not just that we don't want to be behind this wall in the Gaza Strip. We don't want the Jews in Israel. We want them wiped off the face of the earth. That's in the Palestinian constitution and bylaws. Uh, that's what the Iranians repeatedly say. They, they don't want a single Jew to exist on the planet. Um, This is a very, very distorted view. Could God save someone from that? Well, God can save anyone whom he chooses. But very often a person's heart where it's so callous, they're just ripe for judgment. They remind me of the Amalekites who, you know, gave Moses and the people uh, after they left Egypt a difficult time and they prayed on the innocent elderly and children. And when they finally get into the promised land, God didn't forget He told Joshua what to do with those Amalekites. They remind me of the Ninevites. If you remember, Jonah came and preached to them, and 
600,000 plus people uh, turned to the Lord. It was the greatest revival in the history of man. Uh, As far as I know, I've never heard of more people on a single day coming to the Lord than on that particular time. But there came a point in their history where their children's children repented of their grandparents' repentance. And they went back to their evil. That's what the prophet Nahum deals with. And the Ninevites, in their writings, brag about the evil they would bring upon people. They're the most, they're one of the most vicious, cruel people, at least during the Holocaust. I mean, there was cruelty to the Jewish people that was unspeakable, but they hid it. They hid it, um, but not these people. They brag about it, and now they have a vehicle called social media where they broadcast it. And these people who are going around and saying, well, this is just made up. They're, they're not beheading little babies, and they're not doing this. And, you know, they're just like denying the plain facts. They're the same kind of people who deny that there was even a Holocaust that ever happened. But I will say that there are certainly some non-combative people, I'm sure, that are behind the walls of the Gaza Strip. I've been there before. I've only been there once. Uh, we never bring tour groups down to that section just because there is a potential disturbance. You never know when they're going to shoot a rocket over or some incendiary device and try to hurt people or burn the crops. And you just never know. But I led a group for another organization. It wasn't my own. And they asked me to come and I did. And and they wanted to go down to the Gaza Strip. And I said, are you sure this is what we're supposed to do? Yeah, oh, yeah, this is part of the um, itinerary. And we went down there. In fact, the town that we went to no longer exists after 10, 12 days ago. It's obliterated. It's gone. But they reminded us, if you hear a siren go off, you head for one of these bomb shelters. Even the bus stops were equipped like bomb shelters. Um, in either case, um, there are some people who are behind the wall that I'm sure potentially could come to know the Lord, and you should pray for them. You should ask God's mercy upon them. Uh, But listen, uh, people say, well, there's Hamas, and then there's the regular Palestinians. The regular Palestinians elected Hamas as their leadership. That says a lot. But I'm sure there are people behind that wall that could find the Lord, and if their heart is open— uh, hopefully, in God's grace and mercy, they, they will find the Lord if they're not destroyed. Anyway, it's a good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Kathleen, and she writes, Could you speak on whether what is happening now in the Middle East might be a prelude leading into the Sixth Trumpet War? Also, are there any ministry programs that might address this and any insight would be helpful praying for you always? So Kathleen from New Hampshire asks a really good question. And what I would point her to would be either my series on the book of Revelation, which is a verse-by-verse exposition of the whole book, actually 72 hours of preaching, Or you might listen more recently to a series I did called God's Prophetic Schedule. So if you understand the big picture, which I think would be very, very helpful to you, um, you you wouldn't ask this question because you see the trumpet judgments don't happen until after the church is raptured. 
And so when you read uh, Matthew 24, for instance, which is the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus has already stated that not one stone would be left upon another, and they're asking, well, when is this going to happen, and what will be the sign of your coming? And so beginning in Revel- Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, he unfolds what we call the birth pangs. And by the way, and I, again, I document this in the series, it's not by accident that Matthew 24, 4 through 14 perfectly parallels the seal judgments. And so the deception of the guy on the white horse parallels the false Christ and the false prophets. And each aspect of those verses is a perfect parallel. And then when you come to verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, we know both from the Revelation and from the Daniel 9 70th week prophecy that right in the middle of this seven-year period, this event called the abomination of desolation takes place. Daniel wrote about it. And the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple and he'll call himself the living God. And he'll also have an act of idolatry there where a statue is given the ability to speak. And uh, when that happens, Jesus said, look out. And so it's interesting Uh, Again, when you parallel it with the Revelation, it says in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. It's almost like people's breath is taken away, total silence. People are pondering why, because unlike with the seal judgments, where when a seal is broken, you can only see one seal at a time. In the seventh seal are contained eight trumpets, and in the eighth trumpet are contained eight bowls. And so when the uh, final seal is broken, you can see all the trumpet judgments and all the bowl judgments that will follow. And that's the second half of the Olivet Discourse. And they're so brutal. Jesus, when he uh, begins to describe this time, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so he's just reminding them of how severe this time will be. The first half is a time of tribulation, but it goes from tribulation to great tribulation that's untold. So when you ask the question here about this trumpet judgment, that doesn't even happen until the second half of the tribulation, can't happen until the five trumpets before it are blown, And that can't happen until the seven seals before that are unfolded. So it's all in the future. What we're seeing now really doesn't have anything to do with the trumpet judgments. Does it have a significance prophetically, which is an often asked question people have posited to me in the last couple of weeks or the last 10 or 12 days, I should say. Um, And the answer is yes, in the sense that God teaches that at the end of time, he would gather Israel back in the land. He would make them a nation. And again, he did that in May of 1948. At that time, there was only 600,000 Jews, and most of those came in just a few years prior to that, largely uh, due to Hitler's uh, hateful death wish on the Jewish people. Uh, Some fled to Israel, and so by Uh, May of 47, they wanted to establish a nation, and then finally it happens on May the 14th, 1948, 
and they went from 600,000 Jews to 7.3 million Jews. And people debate on the exact number of Jews in the world today, but uh, at the minimum, there's about 12.5 million, at the max, 15 million. Uh, So we're talking about a small piece of land the size of New Jersey, a small, minuscule people group of people compared to 8 billion people now on the planet, and yet they are the world's focus this morning. Why? Because God is going to use the Jewish people to culminate human history. It's not by accident. This is all part of God's prophetic schedule. And what I do find interesting is that Iran, of course, is threatening the Jewish people if they attack Gaza. Russians are threatening the United States that they'll go against Israel if they in turn respond to Iran. And of course, the three big players during the war of Gog, uh, the Prince Gog and the war in, in Magog are, are basically Russia, Iran, and Persia. Those are the three largest of the five nations that are specifically mentioned in Ezekiel 38, which I have a whole message on in God's prophetic series. And the fact that these nations that 20 years ago hated each other, didn't even communicate with each other, but now you find pictures where they link arms with one another. It's not by accident. So the stage is being set. We would be foolish to say that this is it. Uh, This means that the rapture is right around the corner. Uh, We know we're in the season because Israel has to be back in the land. And when you look at a number of signs all being fulfilled at the same time, uh, it's not by accident that the season is fast approaching for Jesus's return. So it's a good question. I hope that's helpful to you. But Kathleen, I would direct you to listen to the whole series, God's Prophetic Schedule. I think that will give you a clear picture of... um, the large schematic, and it will solve some of these questions you're asking. All All right. right. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Jennifer R. She writes, in the book of Ruth, Orpah chose to leave Naomi and return to Moab. I read in rabbinical literature that Orpah married a Philistine from the giant race of the Raphites and became the mother of Goliath, whom David killed. Is this true or more of a legend? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's what we call a midrash. And so a midrash, the word is used in different ways. It can be used uh, just to a commentary, uh, someone who's expounding on a verse of, of Scripture. Um, and so Jewish rabbis today write midrashes all the time over the Tanakh or what we call the Old Testament. Then the term midrash can be used specifically to refer to a method of exegeting the scripture. Uh, Some Jews will just, kind of like evangelicals, plainly interpret the scripture for those who read it. And sadly, most don't read it. Most of them read the Talmud, which is basically a commentary over the centuries of how rabbis understood the Old Testament. So that's sad when you read secondhand instead of reading for yourself what God has written. Uh, That's beginning to change in some circles in Israel where people are actually beginning to examine the scriptures. And the great thing is, is people are finding Jesus as Lord, which is necessary, of course, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then when you see the word Midrash capitalized, the Midrash, 
That's referring to a particular body of literature written largely between the 4th and the 12th century on how different rabbis and different schools understood different um, passages of Scripture. Now, I will say, I should have said it when we speak of a midrash as a means of interpretation. Some use a plain interpretation of Scripture, what we would call the historical grammatical, but many who write a midrash, when they're using the term in terms of how to interpret Scripture, they're looking for hidden meanings. They'll say, well, you count this many letters, and you come to this Hebrew word, and you count this many words, and you come to this Hebrew letter, and you put it all together, this is what it means. God didn't write the Scripture like that. And there's stuff all over the internet that uses that kind of utter foolishness to interpret the Scripture. But it's a midrash. It was some tradition that someone made up that Orpah, um, uh, who, of course, was Ruth's sister, when she left and she cried in that midrash, it basically says Orpah's tears produce four giants. You know, it's, it's like myth. It's just crazy. Now, Goliath, it appears, had some brothers um, in four. And, of course, people make a big shmeal. Why did he carry five stones? I doubt he thought he was going to be facing the four other brothers. Uh, I think he was just preparing himself. God hadn't given him a promise he'd go down in one stone or anything like that. But in either case, um, it, it's, it's pure speculation. It's not found in Scripture. We don't even know from Scripture who Goliath's parents were. The only thing we know about him is where he's from, that he's from Gath, and we know for sure he had one brother. And based on another passage, it appears he had uh, three other brothers because there's four uh, that are mentioned that are associated with Goliath's brother. So um, it's just pure speculation, and there's no uh, reason to believe it or to embrace that. And so you always want to ask, just what does the Scripture say? You don't want to go beyond the bounds of Scripture, which is what most Midrash interpretations have done. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl, Pastor Carl, we're going to go to the phone lines. I believe we have James Freeman, who is live out of Gray's, South Carolina. Good morning, James. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question. Good morning. Thank you. Um, there are several instances in the Bible where sleep may mean sleep or it may mean death. And when Stephen was martyred in Acts 7, both words were used to describe the event. Uh, my question is, is there significance uh, that both words were used for the same thing? Well, it's a good question. So uh, the word sleep can be used metaphorically or literally. Um, it can be used metaphorically. Uh, or literally. Literally, the person is asleep. Uh, They have laid their head down on a pillow, and they're sleeping. And so sometimes it's used in that realm, and it's also used to describe the temporary state of the body. And so I think the fact that they're brought together in Acts 7, and I think I cover this in my sermon on the Acts that might be helpful to you. Acts 7 is a great passage to study. I tell people all the time, if you want to get an overview of the Old Testament, listen to that message on Acts 7 or just study it yourself um, because he, he highlights the key events all the way through the Old Testament. 
but metaphorically it's used to describe the state of the body. I mean, it's literal and metaphorical, but when the scripture says we shall not all sleep, he's saying we're not all going to die. Uh, Why? Because there will be some people who will be alive when we'll be caught up and changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When the scripture describes someone as asleep, sometimes, again, it's a term for death, but it's a metaphorical picture because just like last night, you lay down on a bed and you got up this morning, God is underscoring the temporary state of the body, that it's been laid down in some grave somewhere, but someday it is going to get up when the Lord calls those bodies out of the grave, first in the rapture, and there's a series of resurrections that, that, that take place. So it's a good question. I appreciate it. Keep studying, James. Hang in there. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Neil out of Roundo, South Carolina. He writes, I recently attended an Anglo-Catholic church service where they read the Athanasian Creed. It seemed okay to me until the end where it said, And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. This sounds like it was saying we are saved by works versus by grace through faith. I would appreciate your thoughts on this. Well, it's a good question. First, let's just... um pause for a second about Athanasius. He is a great man of God who is defending, first and foremost, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was being denied in his day. Uh, He did a great job affirming the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. He is credited with writing that creed. We can't dogmatically say that, but I think there's probably pretty good evidence for it. Now, when we speak of the Apostles' Creed, which is a similar kind of creed, uh, we know the Apostles did not write it because uh, it comes almost 300 years later after these guys are gone, but it's a good summary of what the Apostles taught, and that's what they were trying to do with these various creeds. When you see the word Catholic, the word Catholic is from a Latin word that means universal. So we speak of the holy Catholic Church. What are we affirming? The holy universal church. That while there's a local assembly called Community Bible Church that I pastor, we're not alone. There's other local assemblies of born-again believers in Beaufort County. And then there's local assemblies all across the planet. And when God speaks holistically of the entire church, um, That's what we might call the Catholic or the universal church. And so it's just a Latin term to describe a biblical truth. When in that particular creed, he's speaking of two kinds of resurrection, what he is doing is not a denial of what he taught and affirmed in other places, but he is teaching the fact, let me, I just turned to uh, John chapter five. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, and our time is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. And of course, this whole pericope is affirming the deity of the Lord Jesus. He is doing things that only God can do. Only God can judge. Only God can raise the dead. And he's claiming these things for himself. And then he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, time's coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good, 
In, in italics, uh, the word deeds appear or works in some English Bibles because it's not there, but it's assumed. And so many times uh, in Koine Greek, uh, you didn't have to um, say another word. It was just assumed and it was understood with the word that preceded it. And so I'll read it without the italicis and those will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil, and again, in both cases, deeds or works, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, is Jesus saying that some people are going to heaven because they were good and other people are going to heaven because they were bad? Certainly not. Again, this would deny what he also teaches in this same chapter, that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. He just said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So how do you get this present tense eternal life? You believe on the Lord Jesus. You believe him. And what does that result in? Two kinds of lives and two kinds of resurrections. That's why if a person has as their lifestyle, a lifestyle of rebelliousness, a lifestyle where they, to use the words of the apostle Paul, practice sin, Um, Paul says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives these various lifestyles. People who are guilty of a lifestyle of illicit sex, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, drunkenness. Don't be deceived. These people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Or in Galatians 5, when he says, now the deeds of the sinful nature are evident and he begins to list them one by one, sensuality, immorality, drunkenness, and so on. And he says that those who practice such things, uh, some translations paraphrase it, those who live like this, this is their lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, lifestyle. Uh, in Ephesians 5, he, he does the same thing. Um, he says, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person Uh, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So don't be partakers with them. Christian could commit any one of these. But again, if this is your lifestyle, you've got a problem. Little children, 1 John, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. And so he reminds us that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He says the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So one of the heresies that Athanasius was dealing with was what we call antinomianism. Nomos is the Greek word for law, anti, against. And so there are people who are saying you could be saved by grace. And now that you're saved by grace and you have eternal life and it's eternal forever and ever and ever, you can live however you want. Uh, that becomes full-blown Gnosticism. And First John deals with pre-Gnostic theology that will later become full-blown after John's death. And Athanasius dealt with that in his day. And we deal with it in our day. 
People who say I'm born again. You know, I've had people, countless people. Yeah, I live with my girlfriend. I know we're not married, but I'm saved. I, you know, I may not have much reward when I get to heaven, but I'm saved. And God knows I've asked Jesus to be my savior. And he understands these things. We love each other and we have this agreement. I know we're not married and they're deceived. They're deceived. And that's what Athanasius is dealing with, antinomianism. So he's not teaching salvation by good works, but he is produce, he is affirming the change that a new life brings. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away, and all things have become new. Uh, in summary, the reformers taught you're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. This is what they affirmed as the perseverance of the saints. Uh, perseverance doesn't speak simply to our eternal security, though that was included in their doctrine. It, it, it largely underscores that if you are saved, you'll persevere in a new lifestyle and you will have a changed life because, again, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So that's important. All right. So I think we're not going to have time for another one, Pastor Carl. We're about to close, but uh, we're going to have a special guest next Wednesday or tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow night. So we we, we do. We have the acting president of Palmetto family uh, who's going to be with us. And the Palmetto family organization is a great organization. Every Christian listening to me uh, should have their app or at least uh, – be signed up for their email alerts because when there's some moral issue that is uh, facing the South Carolina Senate or House, you want to know about it. And so what they do is kind of like an amber alert because sometimes these things come up and there's only a matter of hours or 24 hours or sometimes a few days or sometimes you get the luxury of a whole week. They say such and such is introducing a bill um, and if you don't call your senator or if it originates in the House, your House member, there's a good chance it's going to pass. And you don't want that to happen. And so you want to be involved in their, quote unquote, amber alerts so that you can call. And the great thing is, is they're so organized. You know, most people don't know. I don't know who my state senator is. I don't know who my House representative is. And, you know, you can go to their website and you click on it. You type in your zip code and there it is. And <clears throat> there's the man's phone number or email address. And most Christians don't ever contact some of these people. And there's some important issues that are coming down the pike that could radically change South Carolina, largely due to Christians who called. We have the kind of pro-life bill that we have. And, and I am happy to say, by God's grace, that largely came down to the people of Community Bible Church who made hundreds of calls and changed the course uh, of legislation in this state. And so Christians all across the state need to be in tune with what's happening. So that's tomorrow night at 630. We have a place for your children, children's choirs, nurseries, the whole nine yards. And we'll also be celebrating the Lord's Supper tomorrow night, 630 Community Bible Church. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for directions and um, all the things you need to know. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line.